Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome to this event. My name is Peter Smith. I'm the, the parish priest here at Leichhardt and also the uh, promoter of justice and peace for the Archdiocese. It's great that you're all able to attend today. Thank you, and a special welcome to our guests also. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land in which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And um, we pray that we will be people who will respect and build reconciliation with those people in part by voting yes later this year. Um, just for your uh, comfort, there are toilets outside and just down to the left. Um, I hope you'll partake of some food and uh, water. If there's anything you need, please uh, come have a talk to me. And I hope you enjoy the afternoon. Thank you for being present and I'll hand over to Julie. Thanks, Peter. And thanks everyone for coming. I know everyone's incredibly busy and got very full lives, but it is testament to how important question of peace is in the Pacific that you made time, so we really appreciate it. We particularly are grateful to Shinako and Nate for travelling across bazillions of miles to come and share the story of what it's like, uh, a kind of future that we can anticipate in Australia where living under occupation is the norm, what we lose in the process. And uh, Nick's going to be speaking about from the position of driving peace in the Pacific from IPAN. And hopefully at the end too, we will have a discussion about, you know, um, as has been said historically, in light of all of this, what is to be done? Because it can feel completely hopeless, but we are all people of enormous agency. And so we can imagine a new way to relate to the world without, uh, without it being a militarised imagination. So I'm going to leave it to begin uh, discussions with Shinako. And Shinako, if you want to introduce yourself, and then I think that. Yeah. Do, do you need a microphone? See how you go. Uh, yeah. yeah. Hi everyone, I'm Shinako Oyakawa from Ryukyu, Okinawa. Um, I'm an indigenous woman, a mother. Um, I'm teaching part-time at the Okinawa University and I also uh, run after-school program for children and sharing our uh, history, language, and so on. So today I'm here to share our um, so militarized um, sad story of Okinawa, but it's, I think it's uh, gonna be a little like a hint and then um, the chance to make contribution for our peaceful future. So I'm here today, thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So okay, so I start my uh, talk about the impact of militarization on the rights of indigenous people in Ryukyu, Okinawa. Uh, Ryukyu Island is once a kingdom, but is a most militarized uh, region in Japan. Uh, okay, we now are the Okinawa Prefecture, but um, uh, Okinawa Prefecture is just 0.6% of our country land area. But we have 70% of uh, dedicated US military facility in Japan. It's concentrated in Okinawa. Um, you know, um, 
and we have, uh, there are 31 US military uh, facilities in Okinawa Prefecture, really tiny islands, but we have 31. And comparing that area of dedicated US military facility, Okinawa Prefecture's share the burden is 389 times more than the of mainland Japan. Uh, before going into the main subject, I would like to share a little, about, little more about our history of Ryukyu Okinawa. The Ryukyu Kingdom was an independent nation, but um, it's annexed by uh, Japan in 1879. Japan sent its police and army to annex it by force under the name of Ryukyu Disposition. The people of Ryukyu were then banned from using our own native languages and were subjected to assimilation policies that changed our custom of those of Japan. In 1945, during World War II, Okinawa became a battlefield between Japan and US, and more than one in four Okinawans lost their lives. And after the war, Okinawa was under US military occupation for 27 years. In 1950s, the emperor, Japanese emperor, who had supposedly lost his political power, uh, sent a message to the United States saying like, he wants a long-term US military occupation of the Ryukyu Islands, whether 25, 50, or longer. And now it's, it's still, you know, the military occupation is there in Okinawa. It's over 78 years, but it's still there. Um, in, 1972, under the secret agreement between the US and Japan, the Ryukyu Islands were returned to Japan once again. And then now it's remained so to this day. Last year was 50th anniversary of so-called reversion. Um, to return to the topic, due to the uh, presence of these spaces, we are the indigenous people of the Ryukyu Okinawa have been suffering various damage of the daily on, the, on a daily basis for generations. Uh, in terms of like a land glove, for example, the land of my grandfather uh, inherited from his ancestor was seized and used for military purpose without agreement while they were in the POW camp. This is a uh, you know, violation of uh, Hague conven Convention. My grandfather it was a war survivor so he fought for to get his land back in protest against the use of his land for warfare. However, three years ago, he was finally unable to return to his land um, and pass away. Um, okay, so talk about noise pollution. It's also, you know, about the cause of the military cleft. It's also a daily occurrence. Okinawa is such a small island, so the US military bases are you know, in the middle of the city, in the urban area. Many of them are on private land, not state-owned land. For example, 34% of Okinawa city, where I was born, and 82% of Kadena town are occupied by US military bases, so we're in the you know, really uh, tiny spot, and then US military got really nice spot, and huge uh, spot in the island. Um, and you know, if, if it's in America, they should have a clear zone and then all the you know, 
uh, welfare facility like hospital, nursing school, or you know elementary school shouldn't be in the like uh, around the wrong ways. But by the double standards, it was allowed in Okinawa. So noise pollution is really uh, terrific damage uh, on our daily life. U.S. military aircraft taking off from and landing on the at the Denma and the Kadena Air Base, and it, it was measured more than 40,000 times a year. So, which means that the you know emit uh, several hundred uh, a day by simple calculation. So, it's unlike to the the you know uh, passenger planes. The noise damage caused the military planes with planes, which is trained by like it taking off suddenly, flying really low altitudes, and then conducting touch and go drills. It's really serious. It's a daily uh, occurrence, and you know, usually like a classroom uh, of the children's school are repeatedly interrupted by fighter jets flying over the school building during the class time. According to uh, the statistic taken by the Japanese government since the return, to Japan in 1972, U.S. plane uh, has crashed at least 49 times, uh, which you know means like once a year, on the land, on the ocean. Um, on one occasion, a plane crashed into the elementary school, and I remember it's uh, eight years ago. One crashed down into the university campus. You know, um, it's you know, of course, killing and injure several people and the houses and so on. And nearly 1,000 accidents related to the U U.S. military aircraft has occurred, including like a dropping parts. One time, like a spray, like a door of the helicopter um, dropped into the elementary school uh, ground, which was during the class, class time. So the children were praying um, around, um, you know, the ground, but it's dropped in that way, or sometimes it's dropped in the like a nursery school. Mm, so it's really like you know, serious. Something can happen anytime, like everywhere. And so like um, mm, dropped parts, emergency landing, mid-air contact, and fell down drops also also occurred. In 1995, a rape of elementary school students by three U.S. soldiers drew international attention to the damage caused by the base on, in Okinawa. So now it's 28 years later now, but nothing has changed. Mm -hmm. And similar incidents continue to occur. According to the uh, U.S. Department of the Navy in 2012, the U.S. Uh, the US military bases in Okinawa has the highest incident of sex crime in the world. Furthermore, the U.S. military is protected by extraterritorial uh, privilege, and crimes committed while on the official duty are not subject to Japanese jurisdiction, and nor, the, nor are the reported to the Okinawan government side. Even for crimes um, that are harmless, the U.S.-Japan status or forces agreement prevents them from being taken into uh, custody. In the 33% in, uh, sorry, 
so you know these cases are always happening in Okinawa. So if you compare with other prefecture in Japan, it's there are 33 uh, prefectures with that they don't host any U.S. military bases, so it's never happened in their their land, but it's always concentrated in Okinawa. Another problem is PFAS, uh, contamination of drinking water, PFAS, P-F-A-S. It uh, has also become a big issue. Acro approximately 450,000 people in seven cities, town and villages in Okinawa, use the water as their tap water. Our waters are also contaminated. The problem of environmental pollution is not limited to PFAS, but also face illegal dump, dumped uh, dioxin, Asian orange, PCBs, and so on. You know, the presence of like bullets. You know, if you go to the mountain and dig the soil, and you can easily find uh, like a bullets from the U.S. militaries and so on. It's really dangerous, and then it's also affect to the environment. Um, accident caused by like a straight bullet, wildfire is, you know, daily basis happening. In particular, uh, you know, women, children, are dis disabled and the elderly are especially affected by those issues. Due to the status of forces agreement, 90% of cases involving US military personnel go um, Unprosecuted, and you know, 90% is not even bring it to the court. And responsibility for accidents involving military aircraft and then base delivered environmental pollution is unquestioned. We can never touch it. Whenever a problem arises, the Japanese government refused to listen to the voice of Okinawa uh, lo local government, saying that the local government has no authority in a measure of security, uh, security, diplomacy, and military affairs because these are the matter of the responsibility of the national government. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our voice is never heard. In addition, this, um, the constitution, a construction of a new base which will destroy valuable biodiversity is underway without regards of the, you know, indigenous people and then also the uh, results of the referendums. Um, okay, yeah. After the case um, in 1995, you know, the um, US and Japan had a, a agreement and announcement that said they will close the Ftema base in the middle of the city. So we were so happy to hear that, but Next year, they say, okay, so instead of closing the base, we're gonna make a new, brand new base on uh, Henoko Bay, which is really precious ocean. You can, you know, you should come and swim in the ocean. It's really beautiful that, you know, dugongs and living in their area, and then coral reef, and then fish, and then it's really precious ocean, but they decide to, um, you know, landfill and then make another base on Henoko. Um, you know, um, so so we did that referendum. We wanted to show our democracy, our um, indigenous voice should be heard. So we did that referendum, and seventy more than seventy percent people vote for no for the roundfield to make another base. 
but um, Japan said, okay, maybe you have democracy in Okinawa, but we have our democracy in Japan. And the next, very next day, they restart the construction, and it's still going on. So it, you know, they say like making another base is to reduce your burden of Okinawa. And then we were told the same thing, and then, okay, we can reduce your burden, and then send the military to Guam. But, and then it's, it's nearly open in Guam, but it's, you know, our situation has never changed. It's just, you know, spread out and expand the military burden to other indigenous community. And then we're, we really have to think about it in that way. And also, uh, Japanese government told us that, okay, uh, we can reduce your burden and then bring uh, some training from Okinawa to Darwin. And then, you know, <laughs> so you're gonna be happy, but no, we never be happy and then, it, you know, situation never change and then it makes more uh, people, you know, in Australia are in trouble. So the, um, yeah. It's really serious, the military uh, issue in Okinawa, but it's not just the US military, but also Japanese self-defense force bases are really dangerous, and then now it's uh, being built one after another in Ryukyu Islands from the north, uh, Amami and Miyako, Ishigaki, and Yonaguni, the island chain is, you know, it's already made, and then they say like this is a pretext of the China threat. Okinawa was once a battleground, and we lost one hosted population. And we cannot accept that, you know, our island, which has, you know, we are suffering from, and then we, you know, our um, islands uh, came into the military base, and then again, it's returned, you know, turned into the battlefield. We cannot accept that. Militarization is destroying the indigenous people's way of life. Um, natural environment and ourselves, um, you know. So we really have to think about what's the security means, you know. Um, we always told that this is for the security, but for us, it's not. Security is never be here in Okinawa. And then I, uh, this is really good chance for me to think about other folks in, you know, around the world like Guam, Philippines. Uh, Australia, it's not just our issue. We have, if we get together to think about in different perspective for the genuine security, I think it's really uh, good and then challenging, but good uh, chance, opportunity for us to think about it. So we here today, and thank you very much for listening my story, thank you. Thanks. Um, oh. That's all right. One, two, one, two. I think it's died of its own accord. Oh, oh there it's gone. Oh, it's come back again. Um, Shinako, thank you so much for that. So much um, for the history. Uh, you know, as I said to you earlier today, listening to your stories just reminds me of how ignorant, you know, I am, and a lot of us are about what's going on in the big world. It's it's easy to lose sight of that when. We're so busy scrambling in our own space. But you're absolutely right. Solidarity with each other is the only remedy and has always been the only remedy against empire and militarisation. So we're incredibly grateful for you taking 
this journey here. Um, Nate, I will leave you to introduce yourself as well. Hello, everybody. My name is Monica Flores. Please call me Nake. I'm from the island of Guam or Guahan, which is in the Marianas Islands archipelago, known as Lagos Dangani in our native language. And before I start, I really want to take a moment. You know, we are two indigenous women. A lot of folks don't recognize or realize that Okinawa has an indigenous people and is indigenous land that's occupied by Japan. And Guahan also is an indigenous place in the Marianas Archipelago. That's the homeland of our ancestors that's occupied by the United States. And um, as indigenous people, we come here with a tremendous amount of humility, respect, and um, care for the First Nations people here. And so before I go further, I would like to take a second to acknowledge the people of this land, the people of this place, the Tatatono. That's what we say in our, in our language, Tatatonos, people of the land. Um, before I start talking and sharing about Guahan, I just want to reflect a little bit on what my friend Shinoko has talked about. I've actually been to Okinawa, and I saw the university where the helicopter crash happened, and many people were injured. Uh, I, I visited that university. I visited the daycare center that she talks about where the pieces of the helicopter fell on the daycare and on the schools. And it's, it's absolutely terrifying. But um, we cannot underscore really the, the horrible violence that's taken place there now for several decades with US military <coughs> occupation that's particularly harmed women, children, and like she said, individuals with disabilities, the abuses these, these are war crimes. These are, we can count, we should count these as war crimes. Even though there's currently no conflict in Okinawa, it's because of the presence of the US military that this environmental destruction and the violence on the indigenous people in their homelands is taking place in Okinawa. And it's also a similar situation for Guam. As Shinoko mentioned, um, um, as, uh, you know, the Marines are being uh, moved from Okinawa to Guam because thousands and thousands of their people have risen up and organized and demanded the removal of the Marines. However, they're not really reducing the burden on Okinawa, as she mentioned. They, they have very small island, but they carry the majority of the burden of US imperialism for the nation of Japan. And um, they're just moving folks around there. They're moving these, these forces around and the exercises will still take place there. And so, um, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking. It's not gonna actually alleviate any of the harms that are, that are happening there in, in relocating the Marines from Okinawa to Guam. In fact, it's gonna bring more challenges for our people. And we have to measure what's happening now against you know, a very long history of environmental racism that we've experienced at home in Guam, as well as um, you know, the desecration of our ancestral burials the taking of land, the forced removal from our lands after World War II, known as uh, taking lands by eminent domain, which is a federal law that allows the government to take private land for public interest, and in this case, for national security. But of course, what she's talking about is something much more important, which is genuine security. What does genuine security truly look like for all of us, right? That's a good question to ask ourselves. And, um, 
Um, I come here today, um, you know, thank you all so much for hosting us. Um, um, we just had a super typhoon at home in May. Um, it devastated our island. Um, our island was without, many people were without power for a month. Uh, a lot of, it really put our water um, system, uh, really heavy challenges on our water system. We didn't have safe, clean drinking water for the island for several weeks. And it's be a lot of this is because of the damage that's occurred for the construction of the bases. It's compounding at home, you know, to think that we, here we are in these islands, which are ground zero for the climate catastrophe. This is not something in the future, this is something that's happening now. These storms are made much more violent and destructive because of the climate crisis. And the United States military is the world's worst polluter. They're responsible for a great deal of emissions that's exacerbating the climate crisis. And so to know that that's happening, to be at this site of a violent storm, but also to see the violence happening on the land to our water and our people at the same time, it's truly a, a massive issue. And um, as we were recovering from the typhoon, we have also seen that the military has taken this opportunity to send a message that promotes hyper-militarization and hyper-federalization of our land. They are part of the recovery efforts. We have special ops forces, for instance, going out into our villages, helping people repair their roofs. And this is extremely problemat problematic. Um, it's reinforcing systems of dependency and, and, uh, and silencing truly the indigenous response. Our folks have, we, our people have been resilient to typhoons for thousands of years. However, these are very different kinds of storms we're talking about today, and we should not be made to continue to suffer the impacts of these storms because of because of the climate crisis. Um, as you know, we were trying to recover from the storm. We also saw that the the building of the base didn't slow down. In fact, it was really difficult for us to get any trucks to help haul away debris um, because all of the trucks and heavy machinery are going to the base. We actually tried to rent several dumpsters and trucks and heavy machinery to help clean our island. Several friends of mine, several organizations that we support who were in the immediate typhoon response couldn't rent anything because it was all going, it was all being diverted to the base. At the same time, we had three consecutive um, military, massive military exercises. We had Pacific Vanguard, Pacific Griffin, and Exercise Mobility Guardian, really one after the other, which is all leading up to Talisman Saber that's happening now. And as she was talking about the helicopter crashes, you know, there was a helicopter crash that just happened here. And so we're grieving the loss, of course, of four lives, four Australian lives. Um, somebody yesterday said these men were lied to. These people were lied to, and they believed that they were doing something for justice in their lives. They've ended up losing their lives. That, of course, with the contamination that comes with the crash of that kind of helicopter. Whenever a helicopter crashes in Okinawa, there's a lot of <coughs> contamination that comes with it, especially with the ospreys that have radioactive material on them, and they leach into the ground, into the ocean. Um, we have a serious issue of PFAS contamination as well. She mentioned PFAS is a serious issue in Okinawa, Shiranko uh, did, and um, PFAS we're finding at home, all of the water wells that the Navy has returned to our public water system have increasing levels of PFAS and PFAS. Um, Agent Orange, Shinako also talked about, uh, on our way here we were talking about <coughs> for many decades now, since the Vietnam War, the Depart US Department of Defense denied the use of Agent Orange in Wuhan 
um, saying that they never sprayed Agent Orange, even though there were Vietnam veterans testifying and dying and their children and grandchildren also impacted by that contamination, um, saying that they were in Wuhan spraying Agent Orange. They're, they're, they're gone now. And now finally, just within like the last year, about the Department of Defense finally declassified that information and has admitted they've also sprayed Agent Orange in our island. Um, the, we're all, I also want to mention that the, we're in the fallout area for the nuclear testing of the Marshall Islands. And so um, th this is all connected. Uh, so our people who were living in Guam, there's, there's a good number of people now who have rare illnesses associated with that nuclear testing, directly as an impact of that nuclear testing in the Marianas, I'm sorry, in, in the Marshall Islands, right? So, um, something else to think about too is, is the horrible cost to, to our people. Instead of using all this money for warfare, this money could go toward housing, toward education, toward healthcare, toward, toward food security and water security, genuine security issues. Mm -hmm. Instead, all of this money, trillions of dollars in the United States, is being, is being uh, used to cause more, more harm to the environment and basically guaranteeing the total destruction of many endangered species, guaranteeing the contamination of our water sources, guaranteeing the desecration of our sacred sites, our ancestral burials, and, and you know, keeping us as colonized people mm. under colonial violence, under military violence. And of course, this is all connected to capitalism. A lot of people are getting very wealthy, um, making a lot of money off of these arms, these war arms, and um, capitalism supports white supremacy. So these are all connected issues that we really have to challenge ourselves to think about the ways we can combat uh, these, the economic colonialism, the educational colonialism, colonial media. We have to really think about ways to break down this massive, massive uh, leviathan, right? This monster of a problem that is the US uh, military industrial complex. And what's also happening is something called, we talk about called borderlands invisibility, where these sovereign nations now, the borders are sort of made invisible because it's becoming just a, a world, a, a, an ocean that is a colony of the United States since it's being occupied by US military. We're talking about the Philippines. They have four bases now being prepared there. They might take back Subic Bay, which is a massive military installation. The ongoing expansion in Okinawa, Japan, in the Northern Marianas, the islands north of Wuhan, they are building a divert airstrip, which they're trying to make it sound like it's a temporary base, but what, what it is is it's occupying more indigenous land. And the purpose for constructing that airfield is because we are going to, Guahan is known for its over-reliance that the United States military over-relies and has invested millions and millions of dollars in military infrastructure, that we, we will be one of the first sites attacked should the United States enter into conflict in the region with China or North Korea. Guam, Okinawa, and the Philippines are being set up to be first strike communities. And that's actually part of the rationale for what's happening here with Talisman, Saber, and AUKUS. And the demand to, to spend all of this Australian money for these nuclear-powered submarines because that's an anticipation of our annihilation. When, when the United States military outposts are destroyed in our islands, then Australia will come to the rescue of the United States.
This is all horrific, isn't it? And it feels quite overwhelming and quite hopeless, but as Shanako said, it really, we really have to draw strength in our solidarity and as Pacific peoples demand not just peace for our ocean, for our Pacific, but for the world. And so Australia, you know, we, we gained a lot of hope this morning meeting with Janice Dong, the Greens member for Newton, and, um, and Nick made this beautiful comment about how Australia has this tremendous opportunity to be a voice for the global community to say we refuse to be a part of war, we want to be a country for peace. And, and, and that, so that was a very promising conversation and it gave me a lot of hope because as well as with Julie, we know that we're going to be collaborating and working together moving forward and we hope to collaborate with many of you here um, as well. It's, it's really an honor to be here to share our stories. A lot of you don't know that Guam is a, is a colony of the United States. Um, after the Spanish-American War, we became a colony of the United States and we are called a territory and the territorial clause in the Constitution of the United States defines us, people and land, as property. We do not vote for the President of the United States, we do not have a voting representative in Congress. And the decision to move the Marines from Okinawa to Guam was a completely unilateral decision done without the input or consent of the people of Guam. Um, and again, that's also a burden on the government of Japan who has to spend billions of dollars as well to build the military infrastructure in Wuhan for the relocation of the, of the Marines from Okinawa to Guam. It's a similar situation that's happening here where your government is made to foot the bill for the United States empire. It's just gotta stop, it has to stop. Um, I, <laughs> I, wanted to, um, I wanted to share a few things, a few details about home. Um, we have three bases. We have a, an Air Force base and a Navy base. The Air Force base is at the northern end of Guam and the, and the Navy base is at the southern end of Guam. And now we have the construction of a new Marine base and a new live fire training range complex. The military occupies 30% of our small island. Um, they already withdraw millions of gallons of water a day from our aquifer. They will exploit an additional million gallons of water a day for this new marine base. Um, at the firing range, they, were, they will fire seven million rounds of ammunition a year. This is horrible because it takes place over our sole source aquifer, which provides our island 85 to 95% of our fresh drinking water. And as we saw with the typhoon, the clearing of that land for the base and the live fire training range complex made our aquifer so vulnerable to, to, to protect and to recharge. Um, we said we had a water crisis after the typhoon. And we're also seeing a housing crisis um, because all of the construction is being diverted to the, to the new marine base, we don't have any resources to construct new homes and, and apartments outside of the base. But in addition to that, there's something called an overseas housing allowance, which has driven up property and rental costs exponentially um, and has forced a lot of people to relocate away from home. Um, we, we're basically being priced out of our own homes and we, I'm, I may not even be able to ever afford a home in, you know, in Wuhan. Um, in addition to all of this, our island is now about to um, uh, they're starting the scoping meetings for the missile defense system. They're, they've identified 20 potential sites around the island, and as, we as I talked about earlier, a lot of land was stolen by eminent domain after World War II. My family lost 
a lot of land. My great-grandfather lost a huge ranch lands um, that were stolen by the Air Force, are occupied by the Air Force today. And we actually get to drive through that land to access whatever land we have left on the inside, which is a very small amount. It's landlocked between two federal entities, the US Fish and Wildlife and the Air Force. And we have to ask permission to go to our ancestral land, which is an extremely dehumanizing experience. Every single year we have to ask for permission. And they can turn us away at any time, and they have. And um, actually just about a year ago, I experienced an illegal search, a search that would have been illegal off of the base because it would have been a violation of my rights. Uh, they were able to do the search on the base and it, it reminded me that they have sovereign immunity like Shinaka was talking about in Okinawa. They commit all these horrible crimes and they leave without being, without being held accountable. They don't have to go to court. They don't get arrested. They don't go to jail. They just leave. And what happened to me that day was they basically removed me from my vehicle as I was leaving the, my ranch and the base. Um, and they were able to search the vehicle without me watching them. So they went into my vehicle and we don't know what they did. Uh, to the vehicle, but that was an extremely traumatic experience. I shared it with my father as I left the base. I was so upset, only to find out that my father and my grandfather went through a similar situation one day leaving the, the ranch, but, uh, but they were made to lie down on the ground at gunpoint. It's very, so this is a generational thing, and, I've, and I never heard that story before uh, until that moment. Um, these uh, nuclear defense sites are quite uh, catastrophic because while they're being promoted as a way to defend the island, they are actually a, an opportunity for the United States to, 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 to um, project force from Guam. Uh, these are very dangerous launchers that they're putting around the island, and, um, and it's, it's, it's getting us caught up as a place for the United States to, to provoke conflict, to continue to provoke the conflict in the region um, without our consent. We, we're, we're, this time of year, July and August at home, is a time where we commemorate the violent recapture of, that American forces carried out of our islands. Um, you know, uh, Guam was attacked within just a few hours from Pearl Harbor in Hawaii by Jap the Japanese Imperial Army, and we were occupied for around three years. And then there was a horrible, violent American recapture. It's called, the one of the holidays that commemorated is called Liberation Day, but those of us in the movement call, we call it Reoccupation Day. And during the, occupation, the Japanese Imperial occupation, we experienced, of course, death, torture, forced enslavement, forced march, forced labor, um, sexual uh, enslavement. Uh, actually, women were brought from Okinawa, the Philippines, Korea, and as well as Chamorro women from home were forced into sexual slavery for, um, and, and, and those things didn't necessarily end when the Americans came. We were, in camp, we were put in camps, um, families were separated, and sexual violence also occurred when the Americans came to liberate us. But this time of year is very painful because we commemorate, uh, we remember our war dead, um, a lot of the tragedies that happened, a lot of the massacre sites uh, where people were murdered, groups of people were murdered, and uh, our own people. But also, we still that we honor our war survivors, and my grandparents are our war survivors, and so this is just a couple generations away from me. This is very real trauma that lives in our bodies, in our hearts, and our minds. And as we are recovering from this typhoon, as we're remembering the war, as we're holding all of this grief and rage, the military continues to do its destruction and continues to make us a target for war. One of the, the I'm gonna end with this, and is that we didn't, we didn't find out that um, there was also a plan for nuclear microreactors for this missile defense system. Our island doesn't generate enough power 
for the missile defense system. And so they also want to put nuclear microreactors around the island. So this is very dangerous. They, they have a lot of accidents. It, it's very difficult to know when these are malfunctioning and there are leaks because there's no smoke, there's no smell. They could be leaching contamination uh, without our knowing. But of course, if we are attacked, that guarantees, right, the leaching of this radioactive material into our soil and our, our groundwater. Um, I'm a member of Perte uh, the Texan Saver Tidian. We're a grassroots group. We just became a nonprofit, which has been a painful transition, <laughs> if I'm being honest. But we are involved in two lawsuits against the military, one for the firing range for, the, for violations of the, the Endangered Species Act, and one for their plans to do open burn and open detonation of, of World War II munitions um, on the beach, uh, very close to the land that, my, that was stolen from my family. Um, and, uh, you know, the, all of this, you know, bringing these horrible stories, these stories of heartbreak, these stories of now several generations of this kind of colonial violence um, to you is to see how it connects to your reality here, to the things that are happening here. And um, that's why solidarity is so important, coming to each, to each other's communities, sharing our stories, but also bearing witness to the ongoing violence is so critical to our work, um, finding ways to collaborate together, to share resource, share knowledge. But also something that's really important is to also center indigenous sovereignty in the peace movement. So I like to respectfully challenge everybody here to think about that more, about how to center the indigenous sovereignty in the peace movement because, but in a way that doesn't further extract and exploit from indigenous communities and depend on indigenous communities to do the labor, for non-Indigenous folk, but in a way that is informed by their history, their culture, and their lived experiences. And um, I thank you very much. It's truly an honor to be here, and I really want to thank the organizers of, of today and our good friends uh, who have made us feel very welcomed and um, who are helping us bring to not just bring our message, but also to unite, mm. to truly unite, because we know that we specific peoples deserve better, but the whole world deserves better. It's for the protection of the planet, and for all humanity, for all future gener for the future generations, and so it's a tremendous responsibility. So thank you all so much. My name is Nick, <coughs> Nick Dean, I'm the convener of the Marinville Peace Group and I'm involved with uh, IPAN, the Independent Peaceful Australia Network, and also the Sydney Anti-Orcus Coalition. I wasn't always a peace activist. Um, when I was a schoolboy in the UK, I got a flying scholarship from the RAF and they trained me as a pilot, age 17. Fortunately, when I got to university, I had a road to Damascus incident and I came to the conclusion that war is utterly futile and pointless, um, and I've been anti-war ever since. Um, but another turning point for me came on that infamous day, the 20th of March, 2003, <clears throat> which is easy to remember, 2003, 2003, the day that uh, Australia joined the invasion of Iraq. And I've been watching things that have been happening rather more closely since then being an anti-war person. And I became an anti-war activist after that. And there's a sequence of events. In 2005, 
the first talisman sabre exercise was initiated, just two years after the invasion of Iraq. You'd think that after the invasion of Iraq, and remember that we were lied to, Australia was hoodwinked by our friends and allies, the Americans. We were hoodwinked, we were sucked in, into going into war. Two years later, come on, come on America, join us with the, come to Australia and conduct your talisman saver exercises. A few years after that, in 2011, come in America, establish a garrison of US Marines in Darwin. I had a sort of a, a feeling about that. When I first heard about it, I thought, they wouldn't, would they? So naively. And now I think, they would, wouldn't they? And so it goes on. 2014, we had the force posture agreement between the United States and Australia. And under that agreement, American forces more or less have free access to many facilities in Australia. That's what they're exercising now in Talisman Sabre. They've got their free access to the Tyndall Air Force Base, which is being redeveloped to house B-52 bombers capable of carrying nuclear weapons. We won't know whether or not they actually do because they have this policy of neither confirm nor deny. And I'll just say in passing, I neither confirm nor deny my love for the United States of America. <laughs> then um, we have the, the latest one, AUKUS, the AUKUS agreement between Australia and the United States and the UK as well this time. If you think about the image of slicing the salami, little thin slices at first, you know, then they get fatter and fatter, and with August they're taking off one huge chunk from our salami. I don't know how to explain all this. Um, and the slightly absurd thing about it is that we've heard from Okinawa and Guam, these countries, or territories, I won't, call, I won't call Okinawa a country or Guam, they're not, they're territories, were coerced by military force, military violence, into the situation they are in now. We, on the other hand, are welcoming that process in this country. It's very hard for me to understand. There is, within Australia, a, a, a deeply embedded militaristic mindset that welcomes military activity, thinks that it's the best thing possible, thinks that it is militarism that gives the country some sort of worth internationally. It's nonsense, but we all buy it all the time. We're sold it constantly through the TV and so forth. And one huge example of that is the idea that we're now under some sort of a threat from China. Well, from my point of view, Australia is probably the safest place on the planet, the least likely to be invaded by any foreign country. We are very, very safe. We do not need to take the China threat in the slightest bit seriously. It's not there. What China is doing, for example, by um, fortifying islands in the South China Sea, is responding defensively to US aggression. And I must say, in passing, it is so refreshing for me to listen to somebody like Monica actually openly saying that we have got to tackle the US military industrial 
intelligence media complex, the mimic. But there is one thing I would say though, and I think this is perhaps behind America's interest in Australia. America sees Australia as strategically significant because it's a safe spot from which to launch an attack on Southeast, on, onto Asia. That, I think, is, is, is behind their, their, their great interest in Australia. They use Australia as a base in the war against Japan, and they're planning, I believe, to use it again in a war against China. I, I, I sort of hesitate to say this, but I must, because it's what, I, what I'm, I'm now convinced of. I believe that within the power elites in the United States, there is an intention to have war with China. They wouldn't do it, would they? They would do it, wouldn't they? Thanks, Nick. Just before we open up for questions, um, one of the things that we've been thinking and talking a lot about in the Justice and Peace Office is what is, what is to be done? What is a position, given the overwhelming uh, scale of the issue, whichever way you look at it, what is to be done? And for us, we are seriously talking about and developing the idea that Australia should position itself as an, a, a nation of armed neutrality. 13 other nations in the world uh, have that status in the UN of armed neutrality. And what it means is that Australia is armed to defend itself, that Australia is armed so that it doesn't look like uh, a place that would be easily overwhelmed. Um, but that Australia maintains a position of neutrality. That is, we don't go to war in other countries. We do defend our shores. We are there to support other countries in a crisis of the super typhoons, the super storms, and our military is profoundly resourced to defend Australia, which means our defence purchase looks like it is there to defend Australia which means we don't buy $400 billion worth of nuclear-powered submarines to be of use to the US in its war against China, that we don't buy long-range anything because our job is to defend Australia. A very smart man once said that nations are simply imagined political communities. We can imagine a different Australia. We could imagine being the Australia that is neutral in this Pacific area, that is the place from which we build a peaceful Pacific. We could become that country. We have everything we need to become that country. The only thing missing is sufficient will from us. There is no point in looking to political leadership from this. They, are, they don't have the capacity to imagine it or to make it happen. But that is our job, individually, collectively, our job is to imagine a different way of being as a nation. Um, so that is, before I open it up for questions, that is, I think, the challenge before us. I completely recognise the need for this to be First Nations people 
front and centre, and I recognise the absence here today. Um, but that's our job. That's our job as a people. And um, I'll open it up for questions. The questions primarily, comments later, but questions initially. No questions, Lily. <laughs> and sh shout it out so we don't have to run this around. Um, well, uh, mostly for our uh, guests from across the ocean, um, I guess, what do you think, like, I also would really like to internationalise Australia's peace movement and to engage in more active solidarity work across the Pacific. Um, what, from your perspective, could ordinary people in Australia do that supports and elevates your struggle? Well, sorry, that's me. Well, um, I would say it's the same thing we would tell people at home. There's no wrong place to come to the movement, wherever you're at. Um, you know, if, if you're just new to it, um, it could be something like sharing our articles, sharing our social media. It could be something as simple as that. You know, it could be uh, signing petitions. It could be testifying in your own legislatures, in your own parliament, providing public testimony. Um, there are so many places, uh, so many, and, 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 and leaving your day having conversations with your own friends and family, letting them know, you know, that there are, there are colonized people around the Pacific in, enduring now many generations of this colonial violence, and it's very connected to what's happening here in Australia. All of that is such critical work, um, you know, and, and, and something that we, that we do for international solidarity, I mean, it's really hard for everybody to do it, to travel, to see, to bear witness to where this violence is taking place, but it is very powerful. Of course, not everybody has that opportunity or those resources, so it's also sharing resources in some other way, you know, um, whether it's making a sticker or a sign or a pin or anything like that. There's so many things. It's so important to not feel powerless. It's so important to not feel like you won't have an impact, uh, or please feel like you'll have an impact, is what I mean. Please, everything has an impact, whether it's it's in your messaging, um, whether it's in your conversations, or whether it is doing something big, like coming to a protest. There's a protest this weekend, right? Uh, Sing the subs, we saw the sign on the way here, which was really exciting. Going to, yeah, going to, the, going to that protest, and you know, um, even with a simple message, if, you, if I mean, gosh, even a sign that says, decolonize, demilitarize Australia, Okinawa, Guahan, the Philippines, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, every, you know, and the world. Any of that is so powerful and goes such a long way, but also um, we are we're interested in continuing the conversation as well with Julie, and so we are, we are excited about whatever opportunities we can to continue to engage people, but I tell people at home, you know, because I, 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 I'm an everyday person at home too, I, you know, I, it, it, we can't get caught up in, in uh, trying to uh, legitimize ourselves, you know, our feeling inadequate because mm. everywhere, anywhere you come in, anything you can bring is is needed, and it's a lot. So thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Um, if you want to come to Okinawa, I can show you around. So please come. <laughs> Sorry, painted down the front. Could you just explain a bit more about the Pacific Peace Network then as a framework? 
Oh, I don't know enough about it. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, well, the, the Pacific Peace Network, you know, I'm actually relatively new. Our group, Persaila, Texas, and Saber City is relatively new. And I was actually Dr. Lisa Linden and Sivadad who got us involved in that, because Lisa is an amazing demilitarization activist and scholar at home who has got a lot on her plate. She got really busy, and I was with her in the indigenous women's group, but also because our group is really at the forefront of demilitarization at home, we're, we're really ones taking the lead. She asked us to get involved, and so I can tell you that it has folks from, from Korea, from Jeju, what's happening in Jeju too is really terrible. Um, people gotta pay attention, it's definitely connected. I, if you wanna include us in Korea, please do, because it's terrible. The horrible military exercises that are happening there, I mean, just very recently in the last few weeks, um, the same incidences of accidents and crimes in the community happen. Same sexual violence, it's, it's, it's really phenomenal. It's a phenomenon truly of US military imperialism like the all over the world. Um, but, um, gosh, I'm sorry, I went on a tangent there. But uh, uh, the framework really is to bring people together so that we can learn from each other. We're constantly providing each other updates because the, the, me the colonial media, right, mimic as Nick brought up, which is just brilliant, and I'm gonna use it now, <laughs> the military industrial media intelligence complex is so true. Colonial media is a wonderful propaganda machine that enables, uh, that first of all, desensitizes the violence for our, our, our community, right? Normalizes war, which is completely inappropriate. Um, so challenging that is so key, but, the, but one of the most important things, the most successful things about the network like the Pacific Peace Network is it gives us a chance to really speak to each other directly, give each other the news on the ground as it's happening in real time directly. Um, you know, otherwise I might not get a full picture of what's happening in Jeju. I might not get a full picture of what's happening in Okinawa. And it's not just the Pacific Peace Network, but it's other international networks that we're also affiliated with. We're in um, the network for um, genuine, the Women's International Women's Network for Genuine Security, for instance. Um, and Lisa, you know, so, so they have a meeting that travels, and it was just in the Philippines in May. And I saw in the Philippines how horrible the military buildup is right now in the Philippines, and also the horrible history of the military violence, the US military violence in the Philippines as well. But Lisa, when it came to Guam several years ago, Lisa was so critical, Dr. Lisa Nisabada was so critical in making sure people from Australia came to Guam for that, and people from other parts of Micronesia, like the Marshalls, we don't hear enough, uh, you know, we need to hear directly from the community. So that's that's something that's so wonderful about that framework is you hear directly from the people and then you get to bring that information back to your community and then also figure out ways to truly help each other in solidarity. Sometimes it is something that's like fundraising, you know, because let's face it, we live in a capitalist reality and some of us have more resources than others, right? Um, and we have to share those resources so that we can keep the work going. But some of it is, is you know, also like trying to meet people in our own, who live and who come to call our own community home. For instance, who are the Korean, where's the Korean community here? Where's the Okinawan community here? Where's the First Nations community here? Where's the Filipino community here? Because it's so important to also connect to those communities in the diaspora where you're at. To, to, to help, because they are also connected to that community at the front line as well. So all of these things are part of this important network, uh, critical, important network kind of framework. And um, I don't know a whole bunch about PPN. 
Um, IPAN is our main is one of our uh, main hosts yeah. too yeah. for this yeah. for this trip. So um, we've connected with ICANN as well. It, mm. it, this is and we're connecting with you all. So this is that's another beautiful thing about the framework is then the network connects us to other networks, other groups within that network. So we can share resources and, and bring our stories and really build an international peace community. Yeah. Yes, it is about building the peace movements wherever we're at, but an international and Pacific peace movement. So that, that's, that's what I can say about that. Yeah, thank you so much. C can I just give IPAN a, a quick yes, plug? Please do. Uh, yeah. um, IPAN is the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network. It's, it's been in existence now for 10 years. And I get the sense that it's growing in strength as time goes by. And um, quite recently published a, a report, and I've, I've left copies of the report on the table over by the window. If you're interested, please pick one up. Um, and I'm sure that IPAN will be keeping in contact with the Pacific Peace Network and trying to build it up uh, over the coming years. We've got to think about the long term. Um, the AUKUS campaign, for example, it's not going to be won quickly. Um, we're going to have to win it because it's the, the, the stakes are too high. Um, but uh, going back to, 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 to Lily's question, that's one thing that we can do locally, is get behind the August campaign. Um, and next Sunday, Hiroshima Day, is going to have a big focus on August. Um, I guess, too, I really loved what Naik said about let's not wait to be legitimised by anyone. Let's not wait for the grown-ups to turn up. Turns out we're it. Um, and let's just take every single opportunity, whether it's like the Sydney Morning Herald's, uh, you know, three days to death, red, red alert. Let's take every opportunity to do old school stuff like write a letter to the editor and say that was appalling warmongering. Get on the radio and say, this is not okay. We all have to act wherever we are. And if we do that, things happen. You know, no, I always remember Brian Siren, a, a really extraordinary First Nations man and a great director and actor, used to start every acting class by saying, always remember, no one knows anything and everyone wants to be saved. And that's where we're up to. No one knows anything and everyone wants to be saved, and we just need to act where we are. Um, down the back, Robbie. It's just wonderful to hear you both speak. Thank you so much. It's so inspiring. So when do we get the good news? <laughs> um, I'm feeling like 1968, so 55 years ago, and for many of my generation, we remember the moratorium movement at the end, towards the end of the Vietnam War. Do you think there's a, a readiness for a campaign across the Pacific where we all have the same message? You go into the street, here's the story. Be colonised, be militarised, be toxified, something like that. The motto, we're all marching down the street and we've got meetings and blah, blah, blah. But it's all, con it's, it's consistent across the place with the same message that I can, can help, you know, yeah. coordinate. Yeah. Because people are asleep. We know yeah. they're asleep. And for many reasons, some of them are exhausted trying to cope with the capitalist world yeah. as we've developed it. But um, you guys are heroes, and we need to follow 
Um, last one, and then. So 
the lawsuits are very critical, you know, uh, to say the least. And I just also wanted to comment on the issue of love because this is this is hard, this is heartbreaking. But I think every single one of us in this room is here because of love, because we love our people, our families, and the land that we call home. And we know that we deserve better. And I really appreciated what she said. And also, you know, um, yeah, just just thank you. So I hope that that answers the question. And I just also wanted to just touch on your point really quick. So Sana Masi, Mega Masi. Um, well, in Okinawa, we have a lot of uh, uh, court case, like suit, like about over noise pollution, about the contamination, about the landfill. It's really hard in J the case of Japan. Is the Japanese, um, like a court, even that Supreme Court is kind of like you know um, <laughs> occupied by the politics. So it's change the rules and then make excuse to uh, like so Okinawa case is something like extraordinary so it's you know exception so they change the rule every time we so you know sue the government and then sometimes we win like it's over the noise pollution we win and it's a cross cross case mm. of the uh, what? Um, 10,000 people get together to sue the government and we won. But the uh, compensation is just like a um, dollar each or so, you know. And then, and then moreover, the you know, government has no power. Japanese government has no power to uh, talk to the United, uh, US military. So they say like, um, okay, so you won. The noise pollution is over, you know, well, so you have you get the compensation, but also this is not uh, caused by our nation. It's the United Nation, United States, so we can't touch it. So there is no compensation between the uh, U.S. and Japan. So the noise pollution stay there, stick. You know, we already did that three times over like three, uh, thirty years or so, but it's <laughs> it's never changed. It's it's actually it's increasing. But this is like a really good footstep for us to, you know, challenge to the, um, you know, government and then to the militaries. So, but it's again like you know, I was talking about the PFAS issue, and then Julia mentioned about the mm. uh, Greenpeace work mm. in Australia. Mm. So maybe we can get more knowledge and information from you know, the, our friends around the world, so that we can get another challenge another perspective, another, you know, pathway to challenge to the um, courts to, yeah. Mm. I just think it's worthwhile to, to understand that losing is also part of winning. You know, like sometimes the challenge is about not winning, but rather revealing the, the situation for what it is. You know, armed neutrality, I promise you, we would not be allowed to do it in Australia. America would not allow Australia to adopt a position of armed neutrality because we are in a vassal situation with them. But in demanding it, a lot of Australians would be appalled to know we have lost so much sovereignty. Nick, just last words, and then we'll have to finish up. And yeah, any final words from you? No, I'm definitely. Okay. Thank you so much for coming, and please, a thank you to our guests from far away.